If you have a Bible, you can open it, like I said, to Exodus chapter 3. I told this little story in the beginning uh, of, the, of the message of the first service that I'll tell again super briefly this time, but about a year ago, we were, I was in between jobs, uh, not in like the bad way, kind of in the good way, I guess, I don't know. We, um, we, we, you know I, I'm relatively new as a lead pastor here, and I started about 10 months ago, and so there was a period of time between my previous church and this one that, uh, that, that we kind of left, and we said, we're going to take some time just kind of as a family to kind of hang out, and you know, I mean, I recommend doing it, right? Take some vacation in between jobs if you can, and so we went down to Disneyland. We took our kids to Disneyland, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Um, if I was kind of worried they were too young. Uh, oh, yeah, the, I like met people, the Dylans are here, right? I, I actually met people from the church in line at the Jungle Book cruise. Somebody said, are you Pastor Ed? And I was like, no way. And it was the Dylans from this church. It was so insane. It made me look so famous to my family. Like, ooh, yeah, people from other states know who you are. Um, but the weird thing is when you're in line at the Jungle Cruise, it's like, and then you just go the other way, and then you're like t- 20 feet away from them the whole rest of the time you're in line because you're just doing all these weird things. Anyway, so you all care about that so much. So we went to Disneyland, and I was like, I'm not sure if we should take our kids to Disneyland yet because it's going to be a ton of money, and they're young. Are they going to get anything out of it? I heard this one stand-up comedian one time say he took his two-year-old to Disneyland, and people were like, that's a waste of money because they won't remember it. And he's like, am I supposed to just put them in a closet and open the door every day and say, do you remember yesterday? And if they don't, just shut the door and say, I'm not spending money on you, right? That's kind of how it feels. So they were old enough, it turned out, because we took them to Disneyland, and it blew their minds. And the reason it blew their minds was because my kids have been, you know, fully indoctrinated into the world of Disney movies by this time. They have, they have know, they know all these Disney characters, all these movies that they've seen, and they go to Disneyland and they meet them. They meet the characters from the movies. And then they go and like visit the world of the movie, right? My daughter got on the Little Mermaid ride and it blew her mind because it was like she was in the song Under the Sea. It blew her mind. And that's, that's what it's like to go with kids that young. It's just you're watching a mind be blown over and over and over again. And it's so fun for me because I've spent the last several years of my life every day watching the same Disney movie often for months. <laughs> Couple times a day, maybe, because that's how they seem to work. And the crazy thing about it is they go and they meet these characters, and the characters are so good at dealing with all the different kinds of people that come at them, right? They have like 40-year-old super fans, and they have like a three-year-old, you know? And they have kids that are nice and kids that are mean. They have kids that freeze up and say nothing. That's like what my kids did for the first half of the first day. They just didn't know what to say to these people. They were just like... I can't believe I'm talking to Goofy. You're the real Goofy. You know, they couldn't believe it. And then they would see him like 10 minutes later in a different outfit and be like, whoa, Goofy changed outfits really fast. The crazy thing about that is like getting to see their experience of like encountering these people that they had kind of like seen in movies and they had heard about and thought about for a long time and to feel like they're meeting them for the first time and how often like weird those interactions end up being and how like you never really know how it's even going to go, right? This is like a horribly bad analogy for talking about Moses encountering God, but I'm going to use it anyway because the fact of the matter is um, what we read about in this part of Exodus is Moses, a guy who has known of God has heard about God his whole life, has worshiped God, and yet now comes to meet and encounter God in a very real supernatural way that I'm sure he never had before. And most people would never get the chance to do. And what he does in this interaction says everything about Moses and about God. And it's incredible because I think for many of us, we read this and we think, 
This is by far one of the most moving, memorable experiences that a person has in all of Scripture, right? Moses and the burning bush, and encountering God through that. But what we feel when we read it, oftentimes, if you're a believer in any way, it's just a sense of jealousy. I would give anything to get to experience that. I would give anything to get to encounter God in that kind of a way. But what I think we see in Exodus 3 and 4 that we're going to look at this morning is that um, the way that Moses responds to God is actually the way that a lot of us would probably respond to God. And it's also a good reminder of why maybe it wouldn't go as well as we would think it would when we come face to face with the living God, or at least come into his presence. We're going to read a lot this morning of Scripture, and we're going to pull some things out of it, but we're going to spend a lot of time in it. So we're going to be in Exodus 3 and 4 this morning. I'm going to start with verses, verse 1 of chapter 3, and we're going to read through verse 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, a mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. So what we read about here is Moses is, uh, he's a shepherd, and he's in the wilderness doing his thing with his sheep, and he sees, probably off in the distance, a burning bush. There's a reason that we know that it's not probably right next to him, but it's a little ways away. And it's because it says that he turns aside to see this great sight. And what that means when translated more literally is that he goes sort of on a detour. He takes a detour to this thing. It's likely that he may have seen it even across a valley, that he may have seen a, a, a bush that was on fire. And we call it the burning bush, but really it's anything but the burning bush. It's actually doing everything but burning. There's, and probably what happened was he saw this, and he saw that there probably wasn't any smoke coming off of it, and it wasn't actually being consumed. Like he says, he probably watched it for a little while and thought, that's really crazy. I have to go check that out, right? And so he goes and he sees it. The first thing that we see here that is really important thing to point out is that Moses actually has to go on some sort of a detour in order to see this thing whole reason that he encounters God really is that Moses' entire life is on a detour. Detour is the word that describes Moses' life. Things never seem to happen the way they're supposed to happen in Moses' life. Sometimes that's really good for him. Other times it seems to not work out very well for him. But the consistent thing with Moses is you keep thinking that it would be a certain way, and then God inter intercedes, and then things happen differently, right? Moses' life is one that is constantly on detour from the normal path. So he leaves his sheep and he goes. Now, uh, we would love to think, right, that we, we would love to encounter God in this way. We would love to maybe see some sign and respond and encounter him. But one of the things that we have to recognize that Moses did that is often hard for many of us to do is that he saw something that showed him there's something going on here, something big, something I need to pay attention to something worth detouring for. And he chose to do that. For many of us, we would not even choose to go that far. 
we want to have an encounter with God. We want to have an experience with God. But when something happens that could lead to that, we say, I'm staying here and I'm doing what I'm doing. He was a shepherd. His job was to stay there with the sheep. He was working hard. He was probably very devoted to his job. God had been using years and years and years of him being a shepherd to prepare him to shepherd his people ultimately. The truth of the matter is that ultimately, as much as we would like to think that God would meet us on the main road, sort of the the main street of life, that where God most often meets us is on the detour, right? The thing off sort of to the side that we didn't intend, that we didn't plan, and that we often don't want to respond to. God makes himself known to us. Do we see it? If we see it, do we respond? When I first encountered God, like really encountered God, I was in high school, and it was essentially a detour in my life. I went to church. Um, I was involved in all the things that a typical person was involved in. In fact, if you've grown up in the church, if you're young and in the church right now, you probably know the truth of the fact that you could, there's kind of a, sort of like at the airport, a moving walkway, you know? You can kind of just get on that, and it'll just kind of move you along. You go, wow, these are great. Why don't we have more of these in life, right? Just taking me somewhere, and uh, yep, there's the end goal. I just need to get there. I'm not worried about it. That's how it felt for me to be at church growing up much of the time. In fact, I would say that my time um, up until I first really had an encounter with God seemed devoid of God. Not necessarily because he wasn't there in my church, but because of the fact that I did all of these things. You know, I was involved in, I went to children's ministry and I was in youth ministry and I did kind of the events and I went to all the stuff that we had. I went to summer camp and all these other things. I did all the stuff everybody else did. I was involved in all the ways that everybody else was. And yet for me, God was not really a part of it. What typically happened is that once we ever got to like the serious time, that was usually when I was like, okay, I'm kind of done here, right? And I just kind of checked out. Uh, so we'd always get to the Bible study. We'd always get to the lesson. Somebody would turn on the spiritual video or something. Somebody would, uh, the speaker would get up and start talking once the game ends. And I'd be like, okay, I'm just going to zone out for this, right? The one thing that no one could make me do is pay attention. And so I was really good at not paying attention, especially when adults wanted me to, right? If I was in this room right now, I would be able to like cite everything off of the menu right there but I would not have any idea what the guy was talking about. I just wouldn't remember it. I wouldn't be paying attention. I'd be messing around with my friends. I'd be drawing stuff, whatever I could be doing. As soon as we got to the serious points, I usually was just kind of like, I'm done. And at one point, I'm at this camp, and all of a sudden, there's a guy speaking. I went to this summer camp. I didn't go with anybody I knew. I didn't go with my youth group or anything. I went by myself, and this guy gets up, and he speaks, and he's teaching out of the Bible, which I'd seen a million times. And he goes, uh, he starts talking about the soils, parable of the soils and and about how, you know, our hearts are like soils and how they determine so much about when the gospel is planted or something like that. And I remember this guy talking and I remember in that moment, like it catches my attention and all of a sudden, then God is real. God seems real in that point, in that moment, and it makes me do something that I almost never do. It makes me pay attention, which is crazy. And so I put down whatever I was doing and I stopped kind of screwing around with my friends and I just start kind of paying attention. And essentially, I'm on this path, this normal path, this normal routine, the thing I always do. I know how it's going to go. I'm going to get through this time. The talk's going to be over. Then I'm going to go on to the next fun thing. But instead, it was like, no, I need to actually pay attention to this thing. And so I kind of detoured. And I went, and I listened, and I thought, and then I was like, I'm going to need to do something here. 
I don't know what. I don't know what. I'm going to need to do something. I don't know if I'm going to need to go forward. I don't know if I'm going to need to go off by myself somewhere. I don't know if I'm going to need to pray or sing or ask God some questions. I don't know. I don't do this much, but I'm going to have to do something if I want this to keep going anywhere. And so I did. I got up and I responded. And then I did go and pray. And then I did start to ask some questions. But the whole thing for me was a detour. The first real encounter that I had with God was very much that. We're all sort of in these normal courses of our lives. For some of us, it's being here. It's, I come to church, and I'm in a group, and I'm in a study. Uh, maybe I'm uh, a part of a way that I serve. Um, I've got a community of people that mean a lot to me. For some, it has nothing to do with that. For some, they drive by the church every single day and are like on the way to work and are like, I don't know what goes on there and in there, and I really don't care. They don't even think about it, right? And for some, the normal routine, the normal path that we're on, the main street of life is I go to work, I earn some money, I support my family, I help people. For some, it's like not work. It's like all I can think about is family. That's my whole life. I'm just trying to take care of people. I'm trying to invest in people. For some, it's I'm just trying not to go crazy with these people, right? I'm just trying to get through one day where I feel like we're all finally kind of happy and normal at the end of the day, right? But whatever it is, we're very focused on it. We're living in that. And then all of a sudden, something happens and we go... I see God here. I see God. I, I've, I talked to some that God shows up in some of the contradictions in their life. And what I mean by that is I've talked to some people who don't believe in God, who are total atheists, and who say, listen, man, you look at the world around you, it's pretty clear God didn't do any of this stuff. It just makes the most sense that we're just kind of in this sort of cold, dispassionate universe that has, that has done all these miraculous, incredible things. Um, but yet, I also find, strangely, that I value people. I care about people. And I, and I actually would really like for people to value me and to care about me. And I think that people should. And oh, there it is again, that word should. I keep using that word should, even though there is no such thing as should, if, if what I believe is what I believe. And so we go along the course of our lives for the most part saying, this is what makes sense. But then we have those points where we go, where is this what makes sense? And that is the point at which we begin to see God. Um, if we respond, right? If we take the detour and say, what is this? What is going on here? For some, it's in pain. For some, it is when suffering and when pain come. Nothing detours us from our life more than pain and from suffering. And we're better at nothing, we're, 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 we're better at fewer things than actually forcing ourselves to try to stay back on that main street rather than be detoured by the pain, right? We say the pain comes, the suffering comes, and so I just have to keep going. I have to figure out a way to ignore it or get it out or figure, fix it or deal with it or get past it so that I can keep on the natural course of my life versus say, no, this is taking me somewhere that I see God in this thing, that he is showing me himself in this thing, but I have to respond, right? I have to detour. I have to turn aside and go that way. Sometimes it's simply a moment of, of clarity that life just doesn't really make sense most, most, of, most of the time or much of the time, and there are moments where it's clear and we begin to kind of see and we say, do I go down that road or do I pursue that thing or do I just stay on the road that I'm on and I keep ignoring what's going on and I keep living my life? Moses has a pretty good life. We talked about that last week, right? He got out of Egypt. He married into a family business and was uh, given the role of a shepherd and has a wife and some kids. He's by all means probably a pretty happy and fulfilled guy. And yet he chooses to like walk away from that. In this brief moment, he leaves the sheep and he goes to this burning bush to see what's going to happen. 
When this happens to us, we can either go and we can see and we can respond, or we can just stay on the path of life. There's a, a famous old uh, mathematician and philosopher named Blaise Pascal, and uh, he lived hundreds of years ago. And after he died, um, they found in his coat something was sewn into the lining of his coat. It was this little piece of paper. It was this, he had this coat that he wore all day, every day. And so he had this thing with him every day. And uh, they took out the piece of paper. I don't know why they went through his coat, but they did. And they took out the piece of paper, and this is what was on it. This is a real thing. Uh, it says, the year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd, November, from half past 10 in the evening until about half past 12, fire. Just one line, capital letters, fire. And then below that it said, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and savants, certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace, God of Jesus Christ. That was it. There was a day, November 23rd, in 1654, when he was probably just in his room at night, half past 10 in the evening, when God showed up. And whatever that encounter was like, he used the language of Moses in the burning bush. That he took a detour at that moment and that it was so significant that it changed his life forever. And we know that because he carried this piece of paper around with him from that moment on. God shows up and Moses goes aside to see him. And what he sees is this very thing that Pascal is talking about. He sees God, a God of fire. He sees God in a burning bush. Now, the first thing that you think of when you think of a burning bush that's not consumed is you think this is supernatural. This isn't normal. This doesn't typically happen, right? It shows the transcendence of God. There's two traits of God that sort of work together in a way that our minds have a very difficult time comprehending, and so we tend to view God as an extreme of one or the other. And we see both of these things tied in in this burning bush. The first is that God is transcendent. This is what transcendent means. Existing apart from and not subject to the limitations of the physical universe. Okay, so it's being able to exist apart from the limitations of the physical universe, not being subject to the limitations of the physical universe. I talked about this last, or a couple weeks ago when I talked about how circumstances don't matter for God. God can do whatever he wants. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. So no matter how bad things were in Egypt, God just kept winning, right? God just kept getting what he wanted accomplished, even though Pharaoh was doing everything he could to try to stop it from happening. Why? Because God transcends those things. Because he can make a way for whatever he wants to have happen to have happen, and he often does. The other thing that God is, well, because of this transcendence, people sort of have a tendency to change the way that God is so that they can wrap their mind around him more. They either uh, exaggerate their own holiness because he's so holy. He's so holy by being so transcendent that they exaggerate their holiness. They become self-righteous and they believe that somehow they're good enough to be around this great God. Or the other thing people do is they, they lower their view of God. They lower the level of transcendence that he is and they basically go, you know, God is just kind of me. God is all these things that I like and that I care about. And I'm sure he's not any of these other things that I don't like and I don't care about. But God is transcendent. And that's obvious here in this burning bush, this miraculous sign. And it's one of the first things that Moses sees. The other thing that God is, is he's, he's imminent. God is imminent, which means permanently pervading and sustaining the universe. 
What that means is that, so God sustains the universe. So how is that, right? He stands sort of outside of it. He isn't affected by it, and yet he sustains it, and he is connected to it always. This is the nature of our God. He is both a part of it, and he transcends out of it. And it's crazy and hard to wrap our minds around, but this burning bush is a perfect example of that because it even draws Moses in, but he can only get so close because of how transcendent God is. What does fire do, right? It draws you in, but you don't pick it up, right? You stop. You keep your distance from fire. And that's exactly what God tells him to do. And when people define God for themselves, they typically think of God as either being wholly transcendent or wholly imminent. They either say, he's totally disconnected from us, and there's no way that we could ever know or understand or grasp him. Or, they, or we say, no, he's just like normal, and he's not that transcendent at all. He's, he's something that we can completely wrap our minds around. And either one of those extremes is incorrect. It's not true. So he draws Moses in, this God of fire. He's drawn to this fire, but he's keeping a safe distance from it. And what does God say to him? He says, here I am, Moses. Okay, so he comes. And then he says, stop. Don't come closer. He doesn't say, come on in. I'm going to give you a hug. Right? He doesn't. He doesn't say, get as close as you can, Moses. I want you to be as close as you can to me. He says, stop where you are. Don't come any closer because you can't come any closer to me. And Moses won't even look at him because of the holiness of God. This is where we begin to get glimpses of how immensely holy this God is, how other, how different he is, and yet he's imminent, he's connected, he's a part of it all, and so he remains a part of what's going on with his people and even with Moses. So we read on in verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you, that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, and you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God says to Moses, I am who I am. I am who I am. This is a statement that is deliberately designed to burst out any definitions that we could come up with of God. It seems incomplete, and yet it is fully complete in the way that it describes him. We normally say, I am something, right? I am a father, I'm a teacher, I'm tall, I'm short, I'm lonely, I'm happy. But this statement, simply, I am. God is not defined by anything outside of himself, because before all things, 
he was and he will continue to be. What he is not is simply the God of the universe even. The God of earth, the God of America, the God of any more than he's the God of um, the Vatican and Rome. Because all of those things came after him and all of those things were ultimately created by him in some way. He's not the God of the universe even because he was God. He was before the universe. He's not defined by this universe that he's created, this reality that he's created because he existed before that. I am. Everything else is defined in light of who I am. God says, I am the very definition of what is real. If anything is, I am. Now you understand everything else in light of that. We say, how can we say that we know what's right, that we know how people should live How can you say, this is how I should live? This is how we should live? Because I view life in light of who God is, the I am. He is the source of those things. He says, I was before you are, and I created you. How can someone die to themselves, like Jesus says, we're supposed to die to ourselves, and still somehow be preserved? Because anything you do that brings you more in alignment with God's character and his person is better, even if it leads you to physical death. I am, he says. And because that is true, then the more of him that we get, that we know, that we live in light of, that we experience the power of, the more life comes through that, even if it leads to death. That's physical. We sometimes say, how, many, how can so many people believe so many things, right? And then this is the one thing that is right. So many things that people believe, so many ways that people believe. And we say, because there has to be one way, there has to be one thing, because they're all in some form or another mutually exclusive of one another. And so listen, there's, there's two basic places we could start from. We could say that all that I see is designed and purposed and intended and meant in some way. Or that what I see and what I experience and how I live has happened, right? It has happened. It has randomly happened. And there are many who would say, okay, that makes the most sense to me. And there's nothing beyond that. That's just there. But if you believe, if you see that there is any purpose, intent, design, meaning, value, or hope in it, then you say, where then does that come from and where does that lead us? And you get all these people saying it comes from this God and this God and this thing and this thing. And God says, I am. As Moses, it is the boldest statement that can be made. As Moses is going into Egypt with all of their gods, God is saying, I am. I'm the only one. I'm all that matters. Now, this strikes us in a profound way because it seems like God's choosing to define himself this way. And so he's kind of saying, like, I don't need to explain myself to you, right? That's how it feels when it says, I am. Who are you? I am. Okay, I get it. You're not going to explain yourself to me. And it kind of feels like he's saying, I don't have to. 
I am, and if you don't get it, then you aren't. That's really it. (laughs) That's the sense you get when God gives that answer. I am means outside of you, I still am. Now, this matters a lot. We so have the tendency and the, and the desire to make for ourselves a God who meets all of the needs that we have. To say, I want a God who meets this need, who is this way, who has this value, because those are the things that are the most important to me. And we want to make God in our image. And God says, I am, regardless of what you want. Regardless of how you think it should be, regardless of how it oftentimes maybe even feels, God says, I am, and the word tells you what that means. Ours is not a God who needs us. And this is one of the greatest truths about him that there is. It's the reason why Jesus was able to do so much for so many people was because he didn't need them. I mean, all of us, when we're honest, have to admit the fact that we need each other in some way, that we do nice things for each other, that we love each other because it in some way gives us something in return. Some of the most selfless, loving, giving people I know are simply codependent and do it because they need to be needed. They need to be to be loved. They need to be appreciated and valued. And Jesus was able to love people perfectly, really, because he didn't need anything in return from them. And our God is a God who doesn't need us to the point to which he doesn't even need to describe himself based off of anything that we know or anything we're familiar with. I'm kind of like this. I'm kind of like that. He says, I am. Uh, This great pastor, Tim Keller, he cites it this way. He says, the biblical God is a God of fire burning with holiness, which is a zero tolerance for evil and wrong, but burning with a passionate love that refuses to stop until he has made us his own. A burning, fiery God. That's how you know you have the real one. He's not a God you would make up, not a God you'd think up, not a God you would want, at least not for the normal human heart. He's not a God that we would make up or think up if we could. It's one of the ways in which Scripture testifies about the truth of itself, is that the more you read it, the more you realize nobody would make this up. This is not how we would make it up. This is not how we would set it up. Moses is the one who records these things for us. And you go, boy, if I was Moses, I think I would have the story stop here because he doesn't really look good. Well, really, before this, he already didn't look that good because he killed somebody. But then after this, he begins to not look good in the way that he even responds to God. You cannot ever hope to know yourself, to know your life, to know this world without knowing who God is because he is the beginning of all of it. The more that you give to knowing who God is, the way God is, the more you will have any idea whatsoever who you are or how you're supposed to live. The reason we could spend months in a series on Exodus looking at a holy God and mostly just look at the holy God and say, what does it really mean for him to be who he says he is? Is because if we can wrap our mind around that even a little bit, it changes everything about the way that we live. 
because he is. And he does describe himself to Moses in a few ways. He says things like, I'm the God of their fathers, right? He says, go to, the, go to the Israelites and tell them, I'm the God of their fathers, so they know he's not some Egyptian God, he's not some other God. No, this is the God. He tells Moses, I'm the God of your fathers. He tells that to Moses, and he goes on and tells him to say it to the people. He defines himself by his relationship with his people. He says, I'm a God who has a relationship with you, my people, and I've heard you. He says that he's a God of love. We know that because he says that, that, that he's heard the people and he's remembered them and he knows them and he's gonna respond to them and he's gonna save them. That he's a God of love. We see this, theologically speaking, even in the Trinity, the idea that God is three persons. Because it means that before anyone else ever existed, that God still was in a relationship. That these three persons in relationship with one another meaning that God is always a God of love, even before there were people to love and to receive love from. But he's also the God we see who rescues because he tells Moses, I'm going to rescue my people and I'm going to use you to do it. The entire book of Exodus is saying that God is a God who rescues. Exodus is painting the picture of a God who rescues his people. And this is not just in Exodus because we saw it in Genesis and we'll see it throughout the rest of Scripture into the New Testament. We'll see the same God in the, in the parable of the prodigal son. The father, who says, uh, the father who says to his son who runs away and abandons him, he says, I bring you back. And he goes out to meet him. And the father who, to the older self-righteous son who doesn't deserve to even be there living with him because he's just, he's just trying to earn everything he has and doesn't even know what it is to be in a relationship, he, he, he goes to him. That, that he's a God throughout who rescues his people, who pursues his people who are fallen and who need him to do that. He doesn't just leave us where we are and say, that's on you guys. But he's a God who pursues and rescues his people. And he's ultimately a God who sends because that's what he does with Moses as well. The way that he rescues his people is he sends. Oh no, now you guys know Moses objects. God sends. We are waiting for God to do something miraculous by just lifting us out of a situation. That's what we always want, right? We're like, if he can make a bush, you know, burn but not burn, and he can do all these other miraculous things, then why is God not just lifting us out of these situations? Why is he not lifting these people out of this situation? Just, you know... Snapping his fingers and changing everything, right? Because he is a God who sends. He sends someone. He sends people. He uses us to do it. He continues to do that. We've seen that with Abraham. We've seen that with Noah. We'll see that with David, the way that he uses him. We've seen it with so many. We see that God sends and he uses people. You see, there are two kinds of people in the universe, basically. There's people who get who this God is and people who don't. People who get that he is the I am and people who don't. And you can have all kinds of information and knowledge and everything. You can be young or old and you can still not at all get who he is or you can get who he is. And those who get who he is, how do we know who they are? How do we know who the people are who really seem to understand who this God is? Easy, they go. They're the ones that go. So many people heard Jesus and followed him and listened to him. So many people said, he's great, he's got so many good things to say. But the ones who actually got it were the ones who then went in his name. That's how we know. 
And God is sending Moses saying, I want you to go. Yes, I I did all these incredible things in your life up until this point. I saved you. I rescued you out of this river. gave you life. It was great. Brought you out here into the wilderness to have a family and things are so good. But that's not what I intend to do with you. And that's not what he intends to do with us. And we really don't like that. I mean, that's the truth. This is the part that we have the hardest time with. That he's a God who sends us. Because we would like for him to be a God who either just miraculously is always doing everything or a God who just kind of saves us for us, right? Now go and be happy and live and be good. So we read in uh, chapter 4 that Moses objects. In verse 1 he says, Uh, of chapter four. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. This is the most realistic thing ever. I mean, how many people really know that this is the first thing Moses says in response to God after he gives him his, his command, right? If someone were to say to you, what did Moses say in response to God? Most people probably wouldn't know. He said, uh, they won't believe me. They'll just say, yeah, that didn't happen. That does not sound like something that happened and you sound like a crazy person. So please leave. We're definitely not going to ask you to try to save us as a people. What if they don't believe? Why wouldn't they believe? Wouldn't the Israelites be happy if somebody showed up and said, I'm going to help rescue you? No, not unless that person was really from God, especially if it was this guy Moses with this amazing track record of not helping at all and just making a mess out of things before he ran off into the wilderness 40 years ago? Oh, and where have you been? Oh, you've been living a wonderful life? That sounds great. That's great. Yeah, we love you. We want to follow you. You're great, right? So he's going to show up to them and he's going to say, you guys got to hear, you guys got to hear this. I know it's going to sound crazy. God came to me at burning bush. He told me that I'm going to be the one that he's going to use to, to save you. And he told me all these crazy things are going to happen. None of them are things that would naturally occur. None of them will make any logical sense to you that this would happen and that the Pharaoh would do these things or whatever. And yet that's what's gonna happen. It's all gonna happen and you should believe me. He says they won't believe me. So what the Lord does, and I'm just gonna kind of paraphrase this because um, as you read through it, it takes quite a while um, and you'll have a chance to read through it in small groups this next week anyway, is the Lord basically says to him, he says, here's your staff, That staff, he shows him how to turn it into a snake and then to pick it up by the tail and turn it back into a staff. Miraculous sign. And then he tells him to put his hand in his coat and he pulls it out and it's got leprosy on it. And then he sticks it in again, pulls it out and it's healed. He says, look, miraculous, right? And then he tells him to take some water and pour it on the ground from the Nile and it'll turn the blood. He gives him these miraculous things, these supernatural things. So God basically says to Moses, okay, fine. You don't think they'll believe you. I take care of the believing part is what God says to him. He basically says, I'm going to do things that will cause them to believe you. They're not going to believe you because of what you're going to say to them. They're not going to believe you because of who you are, your track record. They're going to believe you because of the stuff I'm going to do. Your job is not to get people to believe. That is my job. So Moses says this in verse 10 of chapter 4, and this is one I want to read. So Exodus chapter 4, verse 10. This is where it gets even better. Moses is like the most relatable person in the Bible right now to me. Moses says to the Lord, oh my Lord, he says, I'm not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Okay, that I can't relate to because quick of speech and tongue. Um, Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? 
Now therefore go, and I will be with with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. (laughs) And here comes, best part. But he says, oh Lord, oh my Lord, please send someone else. (laughs) Just like so, so honest, right? Oh Lord, please send someone else, right? God, just I'm going to give you the words to speak. I'm going to help you figure out how to speak. He says, oh Lord, please send someone else. And then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad, you will be, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. And he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand the staff with which you shall do the signs. So God's basically saying, Moses, you're going to tell him what to say, and then he's going to say it well. And he does the thing that you can tell is probably kind of a little bit irritating, which is, uh, okay, fine, I'll explain to you how I'm already taking care of this. Moses, or Aaron's already on his way to meet you in the wilderness. I've already thought about this. I know what I'm doing. I am, Right? Moses' response is so simple. It's just this. I'm the wrong person for this. He even says, you know I'm not good with how I speak. I know I'm not a good speaker. I'm not eloquent. I mean, it kind of makes sense. The guy's just been a shepherd for like 40 years. He's just been, you know, hanging out with sheep and a couple of family members for, for a while. He says, he says, I'm not the guy for the job, God. Now, we see this as like so humble, right? Because if God called us to do something and, and he sends us to reach people and he says, I'm going to use you for this mission that I have, uh, our response would often be, God, that's not me. God, there's a handful of people probably in every church who have the ability to speak or explain things or, or communicate the gospel to people in ways, right? I'm not the one to do that. That's not my gift. That's not what I do. In fact, that's maybe the opposite, the farthest opposite thing possible from what I do and who I am. And God's response is, this doesn't have anything to do with who you are. This has to do with who I am. We see what he's doing as being humble, but what is God's response to what, he's, uh, what he says? It says that God gets angry. When in this interaction does God get angry? He gets angry when Moses, after God giving him all these reasons to have faith, after saying, look at how big I am as a God, look at all the things that I can and will do, he gets angry because Moses just continues to say, God, we can't do this. This can't happen. We think about it as seeing ourselves small. We think about this as having a humble view of ourselves, but God thinks about it as us seeing him small, as us seeing him as smaller than he is, because that's what it really is. When God calls us to something, he tells us that we can do it, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. He says, that's why you can do it, because of who I am. And if you believe that, then you'll understand what's going on. It's interesting that we read that God, that in the very beginning of this in Exodus 3, we, uh, we read that the angel of the Lord comes to him in, in the burning bush. And then it says that God's talking to him. And we go, well, what is that, right? Why is there an angel of the Lord there? Is it God? Is it an angel? What is it? 
You wonder why Moses can be this close to the presence of God, have to take off his shoes and be on holy ground, and then just turn into like a big whiner and not be totally destroyed somehow? It's because of this. It's because the angel of the Lord is actually serving as a mediator between God and Moses. The angel of the Lord is making it possible for Moses to interact with God in any way. And in his sinfulness, because Moses is a sinful person, he's showing it pretty well. He's showing his doubt. He's showing his lack of faith. And so what we also see is that God, again, makes a way for people to be used by him. Just like we have Jesus, mediator. If it wasn't for Jesus, if it wasn't for being able to follow Jesus and have Jesus, then we wouldn't be able to do anything for God or be connected to God at all. There wouldn't be a relationship with God. There wouldn't be any possibility for that. But what But what we have to ask ourselves is, I think, what Moses ultimately has to ask himself, which is this. Do you actually want God to use you? Because let's be honest. I think it's very obvious that Moses doesn't want this job. Right? God calls him and he says, I want you to do this. And for all of the stuff that Moses says, it is abundantly clear to anybody who's really looking at this seriously, Moses just doesn't want this job. He doesn't want to do it. God has called him to do something. God has said, the reason you're going to be successful is because of who I am and how big I am. And God says, by the way, uh, and, and how does the whole thing even happen? It happens because God has gotten his attention and has made himself real to Moses. He said, look at me. I am real. This is real. This is happening. I am. And he's called him out to do something. And Moses' response, I don't want to do this which is the same response that the overwhelming majority of people probably have when they encounter God and he is real to them and he calls us to something. We're like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go out. I don't want to be the one that you're going to use. I want to keep being a shepherd. I want to go back to my family. I want to keep living this pretty nice life. We want to experience God like Moses, but when we're honest, we often don't really want to be called. We don't want to be sent like Moses. And this is the dilemma that people have faced ever since people have begun reading this account and applying it to their own lives. I want to experience what Moses had. That would be incredible to see the face of God, to see God in any way. I want to know that that's real. But if he calls me, if he sends me, would I go? Would I respond? And most of us, if we're honest, would have to say, I'm not sure, probably not, not right now. There's no way that I could do that. It should be somebody else. The most important thing that we can do, the most important thing about any of us is what we think of God. The single most important thing about you, the most crucial thing about you, is what you think of God, who you think he is, how real you think he is, and how much you actually trust him and believe what he says. That will define everything about the most important parts of your life, is if you believe what God is saying about himself and what he is showing you about himself. And so we're going to worship and we're going to reflect on this. And as we do that, I would encourage you to just Think about that. What do I believe about God? 
What do I think about God? Not about necessarily you and all these maybe things you have to do and ways that you might have to change or whatever, but just do I, do I believe these things about God? How big is God to me? Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you give us this account of such a powerful encounter with you that Moses has. And God, when we're honest, we admit the fact that while many of us would want to see your face and encounter you in a real way, uh, we often would uh, be just the same as Moses in our response, Father. That we would be afraid of doing anything, of leaving our life. Most of us wouldn't have, maybe, maybe many of us wouldn't have even taken the detour to begin with and, and, and encountered you and experienced you and seen you. God, our prayer is that, um, is that our view of you would grow as we spend this time in Exodus. That our opinion of you, our understanding of you, that who you are would be expanded in our minds in a way that would actually change our hearts and us as people, Father. God, we don't change because of how hard we try and how hard we work and all the habits that we form and all the bad things we see in our life, God. We change because of who you are, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen. We recognize how prone we are to want to make you into our image to uh, want you to fit into a mold, a certain set of expectations or values that we have. And God, you remind us again and again in your word that you are a God who is beyond our ability to even fully define. And that really, if we were given the God that we would want, when we're honest, that it would not be good, Father, and it certainly would not be the God that we need. And so, Father, we praise you because you are. You are who you are independent of us, not needing us, not depending or relying on us. You are. And our prayer is that we would know you more, that we would know more about you, that we would understand you and that we would believe in you and trust you because the more of you that we get the more life we have, the more life we receive, Father. Even if sometimes what we get hurts because of correction or repentance required, even if it uh, shines light on things in our own lives that are painful that we wish we could ignore, God. Even if when it involves pain and suffering, Father, we recognize that you are who you are and that our true joy comes from that, God. It's in your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week.